Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold. Good to be with you uh, on this Wednesday or whenever you might happen to be listening. Got a little issue with the video feed. I'm Skyping the program in today, but uh, I want to start off by telling you a little story. Uh, once upon a time, there was a lady uh, at a trolley car in San Francisco, and uh, she was riding the electric car. And as they start, you know, speeding down one of those very steep hills, she gets nervous and she asks the conductor, "Are we going to be able to stop?" And he says, "Oh, of course. Uh, we have this uh, electric brake." But she says, "Well, but what if that fails?" Can you still stop the car? And he says, of course, we have an emergency brake, too. And she says, but, but those are electric. What if the electricity fails? Can, can you still stop the car? And he says, oh, yeah, no problem. We have a mechanical handbrake. And then she says, but, but suppose the handbrake should fail. And he says, well, in that case, then some of us will go to heaven and some of us will go to hell. <laughs> and I, I share that story with you because uh, it is the uh, first week of Advent, and on the first Sunday of Advent, the church uh, asks us to ask ourselves the question, are we ready for judgment? And so later on today's program, we're going to talk about the importance of uh, that, just, well, in just a minute. And then later on, we're going to talk about the importance of spiritual reading and also the real reason why Catholics continue to leave the church, that and more. But uh, to begin with, like I said, it's the first week of Advent. And the first Sunday of Advent reminds us of the coming of Christ in judgment. And that is so that we might uh, better apply ourselves to profit by the graces that he won for us uh, in his first coming. So the epistle for the first Sunday of Advent in the traditional Latin Mass is Romans 13, 11 through 14. And uh, we're reading, uh, taking as our translation, the New Catholic Bible. And St. Paul says, Knowing that the hour has come, it is time for you to awaken from sleep. For our salvation is nearer to us now than it was when we first began to believe. The night is nearly over and the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us uh, behave honorably as in the day, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Rather, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and allow no opportunity for the flesh to gratify its sinful desires. Now, when St. Paul says that it's time for you to awaken from sleep, he's talking about sin primarily. And if people today are groping around in the darkness of sin and secularism and indifferentism, it's because without the light of the gospel, they can no longer see and they can no longer hear the warning voice of conscience. And so, you know, they live as if there is no God, and they neglect the means of salvation. That is, until the judgment comes, you know, when they'll wake up at last as if from a dream, but unfortunately too late. So whereas the day represents faith and grace and reconciliation with God, the night is to be understood as ignorance and infidelity and sin. Likewise, the works of darkness represent sin, especially those sins that we keep hidden from others but which are seen and known by God and which deprive us of his grace. So here he tells us to, uh, to put on the armor of light, representing the, the spiritual arms with which we can overcome the world of the flesh and the devil, namely <clears throat> faith, hope, and charity, and the, uh, and the moral virtues and, and good works. Finally, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ means that Christians should think, speak, and act like Jesus. As Father Goffin says, we should adorn ourselves with the imitation of Christ as with precious garments. So uh, on then to the gospel for the first Sunday of Advent, the coming of the Son of Man, taken from Luke chapter 21, 25 through 33. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth nations will be in great distress, bewildered at the roaring of the sea and its waves. Men will grow faint with terror and apprehension at what is coming upon the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, look up and hold your heads high, because the time of your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them this parable, look at the fig tree, or indeed any other tree, as soon as it begins to bud, you know that the summer is already near. Again, I say to you, or amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So why does the church cause this gospel concerning the last judgment to be read on the first Sunday of Advent? Well, to prepare our hearts by penance for the coming of Jesus as our judge. Advent was traditionally a season of penance, uh, hence the violet vestments and other altar linens. Um, uh, but in the new order of the Mass, Advent is no longer considered a penitential season, right? In the sense that there are no um, mandatory penitential acts, no no uh, fasting or, or abstaining that's prescribed by law, like the way there is in Lent. So uh, today, uh, outside of Mass, most Catholics prepare for the coming of Christ at Christmas in material ways, you know, baking and decorating, shopping, of course, but not so much in a spiritual way, not, not like we used to. But this Sunday reminds us, whichever, uh, you know, uh, 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 form of the rite that you attend, First Sunday of Advent reminds us that Jesus will come again. And this time, not as a baby in a manger or, or humbly riding on a donkey as our Redeemer, but with power and majesty and great glory as King and as Judge. And of course, we read that certain signs will precede the Last Judgment. The sun will be darkened and the moon won't give its light and the stars will fall from the heavens and the heavens themselves will pass away. And at the command of God, the world will be shaken to its core with you know, fearful storms and, and, and the, the sea waves roaring and, and wild confusion and destruction and dogs and cats living together as hysteria. Men will grow faint with fear, with no, not knowing where to run. Okay? And this is serious, that, <clears throat> that at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear. And the saints and doctors of the church tell us that's the Holy Cross, which is a terror to sinners and to the indifferent who have hated it or ignored it, but a great consolation to those who have loved it. At the command of God, the angels will summon all men to judgment with the sound of a trumpet, St. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, and the bodies and souls of the dead will be reunited, and the wicked will be separated from the righteous with the just on the right and the wicked on the left, as we read a week ago in St. Matthew or not a week ago, but it's in St. Matthew 25. The angels and the devils will be present. Christ himself will appear in a bright cloud with such power and majesty that the wicked, for fear, will not even be able to look at him, as it says in Luke 23. You know, we were talking about the Last Judgment um, the other week at RCIA, and somebody asked uh, about, you know, it in light of the particular judgment. He said, if everybody's judged individually at death, and their sentence isn't going to change, then why would God hold a general judgment? And it's a good question, and there's a three-part answer. First off, there's a general judgment so that everyone will know just how, how just God has been in the particular judgment of each one of us. And number two, that, that justice will finally be rendered to the afflicted and to the persecuted and, and to the wicked who have oppressed the poor and the widow and the orphan and, and the religious, but have often passed off uh, as being upright and devout, right? They will then be known in their real character and, and they will be forever disgraced. And then number three, that Jesus Christ can complete <clears throat> his redemption openly. He'll openly triumph over his enemies and everyone will see his glory and tremble at his power. Simply put, in, in this life, we can't see how everything fits together in God's plan. But at the general judgment, all will be revealed so that everyone will know and praise the justice and perfection of God in his judgments. And so each year, the church reminds us of the coming of Christ to judgment during Advent so that we can apply ourselves more zealously, as I said, to profit from his first coming. Only those who have acknowledged and received Jesus as their Redeemer will be uh, justified and, and glorified. Like Lent, Advent is a time to examine ourselves, to ask ourselves, have I really believed in him? Have I really loved him? Have I, have I admitted him into my heart? Have I kept the commandments? You know, uh, are we ready for the judgment? The Son of Man's coming like lightning out of the east, the scripture says. And so we should always be ready. That's the Jesus 911 slogan, right? Stay ready so you won't have to get ready. 
And people who say, I don't have time to take care of my soul. I've got too many other things to do. Well, they're going to have all eternity to regret the fact that they didn't take the time now. It's like the old story uh, uh, back in the old West days. You know, once upon a time in the West, there was you know, a little town and the village blacksmith, uh, every Sunday he went to church without fail. And one Sunday he was, he was walking to church and there was a cow hand loafing in front of the saloon. He says, ain't you ashamed to be seen in a church? Big, strong man like you. What will people say if they see the blacksmith in church? To which he answered, I'm more concerned about what pe people will say if they see the blacksmith in hell. <laughs> Judgment, you know, it goes something like this. Uh, God asks himself about each soul that comes before him. And the question that he asks is, do I see the image of myself in you? That's the state of grace, the, the presence of God within us. You know, if, if, if you're in a state of grace, then, then the image of Christ shines forth. But if the soul's not in a state of grace, God can't see himself. And that explains why, you know, when people will say, um, as our Lord says, you know, people say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and that and something else in your name? And he will say, I do not know you. I never knew you. Because he looks at them and God looks at them, does not see the image of Christ. And that's something uh, definitely to be concerned about. Advent is upon us so that we will know to pray and do penance and good works so that we can await the judgment day of the Lord with hope and with confidence. Uh, as the gospel says, we will hold our heads up high because the time of our redemption is drawing near. That's the way you want to meet the, the second coming of Christ. And so simply put, uh, the coming of Christ is, is an event that should be prepared for by something more than decorating and baking cookies. And that, my good friends, is no nonsense. Okay, um, great to be with you. Got a lot to talk about today. When we return, we're going to talk about spiritual reading, probably one of the most important uh, aspects and, and often neglected aspects of the spiritual life. So that, and also going to be talking about, um, last week I said we were going to talk about transcendence and the loss of transcendence in the church. And so we're going to be talking about that as well. All of that and lots more when, uh, when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Okay, God bless you. We'll be right back. Okay, well, it looks like we're, uh, we're back. Things a little irregular today. Sorry about that. Uh, the ghost in the machine, so to speak. Uh, I said we were going to talk about spiritual reading, and uh, and Richie, if we do have continue uh, um, issues there, don't be afraid to cue me when to start and when to stop, <laughs> so it all makes sense in the end. Um, anyway, there's a, a book called An Easy Way to Become a Saint by Father Paul O'Sullivan, and in that he says that the the prevailing idea of many Catholics is that holiness, well, not even just Catholics, but everybody, is that holiness implies leading a sad and austere life, whereas true holiness gives us immense joy and consolation and strength. And he says many also think that it's practically impossible to become a saint, or at least very difficult. Uh, now, and this is an important topic, because the quest for Christian perfection, what uh, Vatican II referred to as the universal call to holiness, is not negotiable for Catholics. St. Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, in 1 Thessalonians 4. And at Vatican II, according to Lumen Gentium, uh, paragraph 40, the Lord Jesus, the divine teacher and model of all perfection, preached holiness of life to each and every one of his disciples of every condition. Be you, therefore, perfect, says our Lord, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's Matthew 5.48. Thankfully, Father O'Sullivan says that God has given us a beautiful religion that's made especially for our poor human hearts, a religion of peace and love, a religion that gives us abundant helps to correct our faults and defects, um, a religion that gives us strength and, and consoles us, strength for the weakest of us, consoling even the most brokenhearted. And he says that, that what we need most is an intelligent grasp of our religion, one that will secure for us not only a high degree of holiness, 
but the greatest measure, uh, greatest possible measure of happiness. And so in, in his book, he, he unpacks what are in his words, quote, many easy and infallible means of um, reaching a high degree of sanctity. And one of the best, he says, is spiritual reading. All throughout his book, he points out that the main reason for so little sanctity in so many souls is not weakness or malice, but ignorance. And spiritual reading helps us dispel that ignorance. He says every Catholic should make a spiritual reading for 10 or 15 minutes every day, and the neglect of this duty is disastrous. So he gives us a list of rules, uh, a list of rules really to help you reap the benefits of spiritual reading. And that's what I want to share with you now. Uh, His first rule is really basic, but it's also really easy to overlook. He says, choose books that appeal to you. (laughs) Obviously, not every book, no matter how excellent, is going to suit every reader. But in regard to spiritual reading, Thomas Akempis tells us in The Imitation of Christ, we must seek the good of our souls rather than literary style, and just as gladly read simple and devout books as those of deep and subtle learning. It just makes sense, pardon me, it just makes sense to try and find a book or books that that appeal to you personally. You know, something you want to read, something that's going to hold your attention. You know, if you pick a, a spiritual book because you think you should read it, rather than because you want to read it, you are setting yourself up for failure. Spiritual reading shouldn't be a chore. It's meant to be a, a pleasure, not a penance. Number two, be sure to pray before you read. Just a short prayer is sufficient. You know, even even one Hail Mary, asking Our Lady to help you understand what you're reading and put it into practice. Also, pretty much all Catholic prayer books have, you know, the prayer to the Holy Spirit or or uh, prayers before any good work or prayers before spiritual reading, right? But any it can be in your own words. It doesn't have to be a, a, you know, big formal thing. Just pray before you read. And it's important, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, of course, one of the greatest uh, philosophical and theological minds, not just in the church, but in all of Western history, uh, he said that he got many of the great treasures of knowledge uh, more by prayer than by study. All right, so that's number two. Now, number three, and this I think is really important, he says, read your book not once, but many times. Now, as you probably know, if you've been listening to this program for any period of time, my favorite spiritual reading after the Bible is The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. You know, I try and read a chapter or two, and here it is right here, try and read a chapter or two every day, um, pretty much without fail. And as soon as I finish going through the whole book, I start over. And, And the reason is that you want to be able to make it a part of you. You know, Father, Father O'Sullivan says it's, it's a fatal mistake to read a book too quickly or to read it only once because it doesn't produce a, a lot of fruit. You know, he says you have to read, uh, or you, you shouldn't read a spiritual book the way you read a, a romance novel, right? He says, however well written a spiritual book might be, the truths it's pre- it presents are so great. And when we're talking about the truths of, of you know, religion, theology, says our, our minds can only succeed in grasping these truths little by little. And, and he gives as, as an example a book that would treat of uh, the love of God, right? It's one of the, the first of all truths. And nothing seems easier to understand than that. Yet he says that daily experience shows how very vaguely and insufficiently the doctrine of the love of God is really grasped. And as a consequence, how very little God is loved. So one book, read slowly. Okay, because one book read slowly does more good than a hundred read hastily. Also, you know, I think it's well known um, that there is power in a good book, and that that many times, um, you know, this power is such that that one book or even one story in a book or even one fact in a book has changed people's lives forever. You know, Saint Augustine, again, one of the great geniuses of the church. But for years, he avoided conversion because he was mired in philosophical and theological errors and sexual vice. But by his own testimony, one of the chief means which made him a great saint 
was reading a good book. In this case, uh, in his case, The Life of St. Anthony of the Desert. St. Ignatius Loyola, another famous example. You know, he's a, a chivalrous soldier. He wanted to live that romantic military life, but he was injured. You know, not given much to piety. He wanted to read books of chivalry and so forth, but they didn't, they didn't console him. And it was finally reading this one good book, one book about the saints, that set him on the road to become a saint. And then, of course, he wrote his own book, The Spiritual Exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola, which, a book that's converted uh, and sanctified thousands and thousands of others. You know, um, closer to our own day is a story of a man named Frank Estes. You're probably not familiar with his name, but he was a, a young American officer in World War II, and he was wounded and had a long convalescence. And, you know, he's in the hospital spending hours and hours in bed, and it's, you know, so tiresome that he's, he would beg anybody that would listen to bring him something to read. And his friends brought him uh, uh, Catholic magazines. And he read them eagerly, as did everybody else in the hospital ward, because they were all in the same boat. But in eight months of his convalescence, he saw conversions of Protestants and, and the reversions of lapsed Catholics. And the experience made such an impact on him that when he was discharged, he and some others started to visit hospitals and started to visit prisons. And they would bring the patients and the inmates Catholic magazines and Catholic leaflets. So not only, you know, were they practicing the corporal works of mercy of visiting the sick and the imprisoned, but also the spiritual works of instructing the ignorant and admonishing the sinner, right, by giving them that good information. And in the process, they counted hundreds of conversions every year. So Father O'Sullivan, you know, in his book, he concludes that it's just, it's crazy. It's just sheer madness not to give 10 or 15 minutes a day to reading some good book. He says, no one should dare dispense himself from this imperative duty. And he gives St. Dominic as an example. He said, even though he was constantly preaching, spending whole nights in prayer, yet he found time to diligently read the lives of the saints. Thomas Aquinas uh, as well. And he delighted in, in that kind of reading. And so I think, dude, all the saints, according to Father O'Sullivan, good reading is so pl pleasant and easy a way of reaching an eminent degree of sanctity that it commends itself to everyone. You know, and some people, if you, if you have trouble reading, you don't like to read a lot of this stuff now, you know, it's the 21st century, it's on audio. And many of it, you can get it through apps or, or online or buy CDs and so forth. Um, now, speaking of spiritual reading, I've already said I, I love the imitation of Christ. That's one of my favorites. I like um, the uh, what is it, the Secret of the Rosary by uh, Louis de Montfort is another favorite. This book here is called Mary, My Hope. It was written by Father Lavosic, uh, and back in the 50s, but I just now discovered it. Great book um, and a new favorite of mine. But, you know, over the years— um, one of my favorites uh, has been Father O'Sullivan himself. He's become one of my favorite spiritual writers precisely because of his simplicity and his faith. Uh, you know, he's an exemplar of those words of Thomas Akempis that, that we should just as gladly read simple and devout books as those of deep and subtle learning. So I want to recommend some books by Father O'Sullivan, uh, beginning with the one we've been referencing, An Easy Way to Become a Saint. Uh, I've got it right here. Um, and it really, it's, it's very optimistic, and it shows how ordinary Catholics can become great saints without doing anything extraordinary, you know, just by using the many opportunities for holiness that, uh, that are provided for us every single day and that are, that are hidden from so many people. Uh, another is this book, a little thicker book called How to Be Happy, How to Be Holy, and it really goes into... Uh, the meaning, the profound meaning of the most basic Catholic prayers, the kind of prayers that people often say or say every day even, but without often thinking about the deep meaning uh, behind them. Really terrific. There's also a great uh, uh, expounding on you know, the history of the rosary and the, uh, uh, the mysteries of the rosary. He's got a terrific section in here on the Holy Mass. I think there are, people have you know, read this and never looked at Mass the same way again. And, and the, the benefits of, of ejaculatory prayer and that sort of thing. So just terrific book, How to Be Happy, How to Be Holy, which I think the most important thing is he shows that the two are connected, that holiness is really the way to happiness. Um, he's also, he wrote a book called All, of, All About the Angels, which is really good. And um, he's written a whole series of booklets, 
right? Um, and uh, the Wonders of the Holy Mass, for example, uh, is a tr- good one. Uh, Wonders of the Holy Name. Terry Barber and I have talked about these things. Uh, oftentimes, if I uh, guest on the, uh, the Terry and Jesse show, we'll talk about the topics of one of those Father O'Sullivan books, just because they are, you know, it's such great meat and potatoes spirituality. Um, but then he's got these two, I think, that are the most famous, and they're connected. The first is called Read Me or Rue It. And this is all about purgatory. I mean, there's stories uh, of the souls in purgatory. Uh, it talks about our spiritual connection to the holy souls, how we can help them, and and how they can help us also. You know, and then his other one is uh, connected, is how to avoid purgatory, which is terrific because uh, he tells us, remarkably but true, that nobody goes to purgatory except for faults they could have avoided. All right? Spiritual reading. No soul can be lost by following the simple and well-beaten path of devotion and prayer. And that's no nonsense. Back in a minute. Welcome back, No Nonsense Catholic. Um, Before the break, I said that uh, Father Paul O'Sullivan's many books are uh, proof of Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson's axiom that no soul can be lost by following the simple and well-beaten path of ordinary devotion and prayer. Unfortunately, many Catholics have abandoned the practice of the faith altogether. Prior to the Second Vatican Council, 75% of Catholics in the United States attended Mass on Sunday. Today, it's uh, less than 25%. And that number has actually been fairly consistent over the last 10 or 20 years. Um, Although Catholics, especially the young, continue to abandon the faith. And I I suspect that uh, the reason the numbers have remained more or less consistent is because of immigration, both legal and otherwise. In any event, the $64 question is why? Why have our last three generations of U.S. Catholics been leaving the faith in droves? And and um, I actually said we were going to talk about this last week, and we ran out of time, so we're going to do it now. Um, uh, referring to an article by Father Bill Peckman, something that he wrote actually back in 2019. And Father Peckman has been a pastor for 22 years. He's a member of one of, the, one of those generations that fell away. Um, and he himself fell away from the faith as a young man, fell into agnosticism. Thanks be to God, he uh, came back and answered the call to the Holy Priesthood. He's currently the pastor of not one but three parishes in Missouri. And so he's seeing that that crisis uh, up close and personal. And he's got his own theories about what's going on. And I am um, I have not done show notes yet, so this is a note to Richie. Give me a minute after the, uh, after the broadcast, and I'll be sure to put a link up in the show notes so that you can look at his original article for yourself. Um, but why are Catholics leaving the church? Father Peckman says the first culprit is that we forgot the transcendent, that we have actively, actively, stripped the transcendent from our Catholic identity. Now, I'm not going to go for the low-hanging fruit here and blame Vatican II or the new Mass. I you know, talk about that all the time. The fact is that Vatican II did not change the faith, and the new Mass can be reverently and beautifully celebrated. In fact, there are a few places here in Southern California that have a beautiful and reverent Novus Ordo Mass, complete with Latin and Gregorian chant. They're few and far between, but they do exist. And, and the fact is, though, that in the last 50 years, certain powerful currents in the church have pushed the so-called spirit of Vatican II and what Benedict XVI called the hermeneutic of rupture. Back in 1988, when he was still Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, he said, the Second Vatican Council has not been treated as, as just one part of the entire living tradition of the church, but as the end of tradition, as a new start from zero. He says the truth is that this particular council defined no dogma at all and deliberately chose to remain on a modest level as a merely pastoral council. I'm going to repeat that, merely pastoral council. And I repeat that because those are not my words, but Benedict XVI. Those are Joseph Ratzinger's words. And he says, yet many treat it, right, Vatican II, as though it had made itself into some sort of super dogma which takes away the importance of all the rest. 
And this, he says, he called that uh, the hermeneutic of rupture. And, and the smoking gun of this idea that, uh, you know, Vatican II is, is some kind of radical do-over of the Catholic faith can be seen in the document uh, Traditionis Custodis of Pope Francis. When he says that the new Mass is the unique, that is, the only legitimate law of prayer in the Church, well, logically, that means that the, the Lex Credendi, the, 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 this law of belief, is something different today than the Catholic faith was in 1962. So what is this new faith? And I, I, I'm afraid that the faith that most Catholics in this country hold is no longer the traditional faith, which is to say the faith that's actually represented by the documents of Vatican II, but what's been called um, moralistic therapeutic deism. And what is that, you ask? Well, it's not a new religion or theology as such. It's just, you know, it's identified as a commonly held set of spiritual beliefs, and it can be broken down into five general categories or five general beliefs. Number one, there is a God who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay, so there is a God. Number two, God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. And of course, I would say uh, they, most people conflate happiness with pleasure. But to, the goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. Uh, number four, God doesn't need to be particularly involved in your life, you know, unless you need him to resolve a problem, right? People, in, instead of turning to God uh, as a first response, uh, they tend to return to him as a last resort. And then finally, number five, all good people go to heaven when they die. This is the basic belief of most Christians, including Catholics in this country today. Add to it a dash of, of SJW wokeness, and you have the religion of a tamed God, a God that we've remade in our own image. And that's what Father Peckman is talking about. He says the concept of personal sin went away and became social sin or societal sin. And with this move, confession went to the wayside and was, was replaced with a morphed, his word, I would say warped, view of social justice. And what did that accomplish? He says, it gave us the liberty to complain about corporate sin while at the same time smugly distance ourselves from it. The tamed God was always on our side to the point where his being around at all is little more than a security blanket, something to be outgrown. He says, in the liturgy, the focus of mass went from God to humanity. We came to affirm ourselves and not to worship God. We went for what was comfortable and unchallenging. In fact, things were so unchallenging that Mass itself became a dreary exercise in self-affirmation. Father Peckman says, if you want to lose people, especially men, this is the right route to take. Uh, he says, the more we experimented with the Mass, changed the Mass, gutted the challenge from preaching into therapeutic moralism, and filled the liturgy with songs about us, the more and more people wandered out. Uh, he says, we also tamed the devil and the demonic. And he says, dismissing God's transcendence made it easy. The devil has become the poster boy for secular humanism. And when we tamed God and the devil, Father says, that led us to largely dismiss them. And the result is that spiritual warfare was dismissed and replaced with the, you know, the attitude of be nice. I should mention, uh, bringing up spiritual warfare, that we've got a spiritual warfare conference coming up uh, in January of next year, just a little more than a month away, January uh, 29th and 30th, the 2022 Spiritual Warfare Conference. Our own Jesse Romero is going to be there, Dr. Dan Schneider and Kyle Clements from Libre Cristo, and our special guest, Father Chad Ripperger, famous exorcist, going to join us for the Spiritual Warfare Conference. If you want to go, I suggest you register now because it is uh, filling up fast. Seating is limited. $75 a person. You can find out all about it or register at vmpr.org or you can call the office at 877-526-2151. Okay, end of commercial. The point is, spiritual warfare has largely fallen off the landscape of our uh, modern spirituality. Yeah, and has been replaced with the virtue of being nice. 
Uh, the other way we dismissed the transcendent was by emptying the transcendent in education. He says Catholic identity was seen not only as old-fashioned, but even detrimental to education. And he says the Land O'Lakes Declaration shooed Catholic identity, identity away as if it were a pesky fly. Now, uh, if you're not familiar with the Land O'Lakes Declaration, this is something that came out of a conference that was held in July of 1967. So three years before the Novus Ordo Mass was introduced and two years after the close of Vatican II. It was hosted by the president of Notre Dame University and the, uh, a bunch of uh, uh, um, you know, sheep's heads got together to answer the question, what is the nature and role of the contemporary Catholic university? And their answer, to quote from the statement itself, is this. All recognized university areas of study are frankly and fully to are frankly and fully accepted and their internal autonomy affirmed and guaranteed. There must be no theological or philosophical imperialism. All scientific and disciplinary methods and methodologies must be given their due honor and respect. All methods, all methodologies. That is to say, even if they are repugnant to Catholic faith and morals. And of course, the result is that the Catholic university became a place to send your kids to lose the faith. And Father tells us that this Land O'Lakes attitude then, uh, in his words, seeped into the catechetical materials used for all ages of children. And we shifted away from a transcendent God who has expectations of us as his people to this kind of doddering old fool of a God who enables our whims because he doesn't have any preference regarding morality. In the process, he says, morality became subjective. You want to use birth control? Cool. Cohabitate? No problem. Reduce your body to a carnal playground to, to be used as a toy? Sure. And the list goes on. And of course, it's only gotten worse to the point that men and women today, some of them deny their very biological sex. And then university professors line up to affirm what is essentially a denial of reality. You know, side note here, that the principle of non-contradiction is one of the building blocks of rational thought. And it states that a thing cannot be and not be in the same sense at the same time. Therefore, it follows that if you're a man, you cannot also be a woman. It's a contradiction. And a contradiction is, by definition, a nonsense. St. Thomas Aquinas tells us the definition of truth is conforming the mind to reality. This gender identity business is a denial of reality and therefore the opposite of the truth. And consequently, any thinking person should dismiss the whole business as the nonsense that it clearly is. And no individual or institution that supports it or, or treats it seriously is deserving of your support in any way. And I'm sure that somebody listening is an alumnus of an Ivy League Catholic university. I'm telling you right now, please stop giving those people money. Okay, uh, you're listening to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. We will return in just a few minutes. So stick with us, and we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, talking about um, uh, why Catholics are leaving the church and Father Bill Peckman's um, response that it is primarily because of the lack of transcendence in our understanding of the faith. Uh, without the transcendent, Father says, religion is just reduced to feeling good. So it's no wonder that uh, even Catholic priests and religious would start dabbling in in pagan religions and Eastern mysticism and, you know, socialism and environmentalism and so forth. Nor is it any wonder that they encouraged others to do the same because the human heart needs a sense of transcendence. It's like GK Chesterton said, if, if you stop believing in the truth that you don't believe in nothing, on the contrary, you're liable to believe in anything. You know, uh, it's like if you starve somebody of food, they will gladly gobble poison. Same as if, you know, you starve the soul of truth, it'll gladly gobble up error. If we take transcendence from God, 
then we'll have to appropriate it for ourselves. And, you know, you make God irrelevant in the pursuit. You see, according to Father Peckman, this was the seedbed of the, the popular mantra, I'm spiritual but not religious, that for three generations, we've been making God irrelevant. And as a natural consequence, that, that seeps into your homes. And that's where it becomes fatal. He says, the first generation raised on this watered-down nonsense became parents who learned well the lessons taught. If eternal happiness is already guaranteed from God without our effort, then we can focus on, on pleasure and happiness in this world. And after a few generations, eternal happiness is overwhelmed by the temporal. And the primary way that religion was taught, he says, was by absence, with children like their parents becoming comfortable with pursuing, or pursuing the temporal exclusively. Mass, prayer, religious formation, he says, became theological roadkill on the highway to hell. <laughs> that's, that's pretty dramatic. But, you know, as, as he said, the heart does need transcendence. And what happens? You know, the temporal, if you, if you rob yourself of real transcendence, then the temporal starts to take on a transcendent quality. The pursuit of wealth and pleasure and power and honor become the focus. And the temporal he says, gets treated with the devotion that was once given to the transcendent. And the transcendent gets treated with the laissez-faire attitude of the temporal. See, treating the temporal as if it were the transcendent actually has a name. It's called idolatry. Money and power and, and pleasure and popularity, these were the idols of the Egyptians and the Babylonians, the, the Greeks and the Romans. Christ came to free us from the slavery of this idolatry. And here are the Catholics and the Protestants and the Jews all lining up to worship at their feet. You know, I think there's a consensus among spiritual writers that foreseeing the indifference to his sacrifice was what caused Christ to sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, so what's to do? Uh, Father Peckman says we need to remember that without a transcendent God, the church is irrelevant. The world believes this already. And, and for too long, we've acted as though they were right. We have to reclaim our birthright by remembering who God is and what he expects. And th that's going to be a long road, Father Peckman. He says it's going to be a shock to the system because it starts with us admitting that we messed up. We have to own our mistakes, do an appropriate mea culpa, reverse course. You know, I first read this article two years ago. And he first started writing about loss of transcendence two years before that, back in 2017. But I thought of sharing it this week. The reason it popped into my head is because of the approach of Advent. That in the coming weeks, the gospel will be about the ministry of John the Baptist, who preached repentance, repent and believe in the gospel. To repent literally means to turn back, to turn back to God. And that begins by admitting that we're going in the wrong direction. It's pride that keeps the spirit of Vatican II crowd from admitting this simple fact. It blinds them to the disaster that they've created with their progressivism. You know, it's like C.S. Lewis said, we all want progress, but if you're going down the wrong road, the man who turns back first is really the most progressive. The most progressive thing that we can do today is return to traditional Catholicism. Father Peckman says, we understand that in trying to tame God and the devil, or we must understand that in trying to tame God and the devil, we left ourselves open for ruin. Can there be any wonder that we've experienced the depravity both uh, inside and outside the church in the last century? You know, he says that the sexual scandals are just a symptom of the disease, not the disease itself, because those sexual scandals could only grow in the atmosphere of a loss of transcendence. Transcendence. He says, how can you molest children in seminarians and cover it up if you really believe in a transcendent God. So the solution, he says, it's not more protocols. What needs to happen is that our masses and our families and our parishes must reflect reality. That there most definitely is a transcendent God, that he does have expectations of us, and that while he does indeed love each of us uniquely, we have to love him as well. You know, I've been saying for years that, that the church shouldn't seek so much to be relevant as to be coherent. You know, we lost the road to relevance decades ago. 
And now we have to restore the transcendent. Catholics all over the world, you know, all over the country, we stand up each and every Sunday and recite the Nicene Creed. Well, to be coherent, we must worship and live our lives in the way that we profess to believe. We need to repent. We need to turn back. It is the curse of men that they forget. We can and must remember who we really are and who we're really called to be. And that is no nonsense. Okay, finally, there's some good news on this front. Uh, back on the 1st of November, uh, we're published, <clears throat> pardon me, the findings from the 2021 Survey of American Catholic Priests. And it had some interesting results. The, uh, the last such survey was in 2002, and some things have changed. The least surprising is that morale is lower uh, amongst the clergy under Francis than it was under John Paul II. And I would say that's consistent among faithful Catholics everywhere. But there's more. Uh, researchers classified the priests into these kind of large groups uh, by their self-described political persuasion. And then they broke the groups into, into cohorts based on the year that they were ordained. And, and they found that the priests who were ordained before Vatican II were relatively conservative, you know, before 1960, followed by more permissive or liberal uh, priests who were ordained in the 60s and 70s. And then after the, the permissive, permissive cohorts of the 60s and 70s, there was a steady move toward more conservative views among the cohorts of each successive year. And you can see that, I, I, you know, clearly under John Paul II, we, we had the whole uh, Catholic uh, lay apologetics movement and, and lay evangelization and all of that was happening. And a lot of people kind of saw that the pendulum was maybe swinging back uh, from the very progressive years of, of Paul VI. And then, uh, you know, the pontificate of Benedict XVI seemed to just confirm that, you know, more and more conservative priests during the pontificates of JP II and Benedict XVI. And, and Catholic priests ordained since the year 2000 and after tend to be the most conservative. Well, what do they mean? What do they mean by conservative? Uh, well, that these priests on average were, well, priests across the boards, but these priests especially were less favorable to female deacons, less in favor of ordaining women priests, less favorable towards the idea of married priests compared to 2002. So in no nonsense terms, these younger priests are just more Catholic. Okay. Perhaps the most striking example was a theological question. They asked them, do you believe faith in Jesus Christ to be the sole path to salvation? You know, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Now, you know perfectly well, Catholic Church, uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church says, all salvation comes from Christ the head through his body, the church. Jesus himself explicitly asserted the, necess the necessity of faith and baptism. And in the very next paragraph, it, it affirms that, that, that those who thrown, through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ, but nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart, moved by grace, etc., uh, may achieve eternal salvation. But that's not in spite of Christ. Okay, there, Everyone is still saved through the graces won by the Holy Cross. And Catechism says the church still has the obligation, the sacred right and duty to evangelize all men. Okay. Jesus is the way, the truth and life, not a way, not one way among many, not the preferred way, the way. So the priests in 2021 were overall more likely to affirm the belief that Jesus is the sole path to salvation uh, than, than they did in 2002. But stark difference emerge between the different political persuasions. See, among the priests who identified uh, as very liberal, 40% of them disagreed strongly with the assertion that the sole path to salvation is through Jesus Christ. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, among the very conservative priests, 82% said that they agreed strongly that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, I mean, you might say yeah, they're, they're, they're left and right, they're they're liberal or conservative. I really don't like those uh, um, using political labels. I would just say that you, you, what you've got is orthodox and unorthodox and or heterodox. You know, you've got people, priests that believe in the Catholic faith and the priests that don't. Uh, the survey also asked priests about um, other sinful behavior 
you know, uh, do they consider non-marital sex, abortion, birth control, uh, homosexual behavior, suicide, um, uh, whatever you call it, where you get mercy killing and masturbation, right? This, this list, do you, do you consider those to be sinful? Well, obviously the church teaches that all those things are sinful and gravely so. And the good news is that overall, priests in 2021 were more likely to, to agree that these things are sinful than the priests in 2002. And also, the priests were asked about the church's trajectory. Is the church getting better? Is it staying the same? Is it getting worse? And the priests who assessed the church as maybe not so good spanned across the political spectrum. And so the researchers said that they, they speculate that their pessimism seems to, to be a period effect, you know, meaning that the, there's something about the 2020s that are different from the, the 2002 uh, time. And golly, what could that be? <laughs> and they speculate one reason might be the spiritual and moral lives of Catholic laity, uh, kind of claiming that, uh, uh, that uh, you know, uh, only 22% of the Catholic priests believe that most of the laity are, are living out the church's teachings and moral issues. And that's no doubt true. But um, that's not the only thing affecting morale. Maybe we'll get into that more next week. The good news is that dissatisfaction among the priests is directly proportional to their orthodoxy, which is growing. And that's good news. And that's no nonsense. Okay, see you next week. <laughs>